Are we talking podcast situations? Could it be a podcast situation? Do you like my podcast situation? I've got a podcast situation going on. I've got a podcast. Can't you see my podcast? I've got a podcast situation going on. Could it be my podcast? Could it be my podcast? If you like my podcast, let me hear it is my podcast. Can you feel it? Do you like my podcast, baby? Let's go. Episode 12. We are in it. Thank you for being here with me. So I've started to realize that this podcast has slowly started to morph into a more educational style format. And education in a wide variety. We talk about spirituality, history books, science, technology, metaphysics, religions. Um, When I started, uh, I didn't really know... I didn't really know the lane I was going into. I didn't really know where this podcast was headed. That's kind of why I was uh, relying on uh, listener, or uh, I was I was relying on people to submit questions, and I would field those questions. But I slowly started to um, I slowly started to get into what I'm doing now, uh, more of taking deep dives into, like I said, science, technology, metaphysics, and just picking a topic and really focusing in on it. And I'm really happy with how things are going. I'm really happy with the direction that this podcast is headed. So if you're here on episode 12, thank you for coming with me on this roller coaster. And I really do appreciate, I really do appreciate each and every one of you dialing in and, uh, checking out my podcast when there's so many out there. There's like infinite, everyone on planet Earth, everyone inside of our solar system has a podcast. So for you to be here listening to me ramble about a topic that I think is interesting is really special and really important to me. So first and foremost, thank you. For me personally, it is ridiculously satisfying to help um, educate or inform or just share information and I've had some really so far I've had some really heartwarming connections and experiences and we're only on episode 12 so to have to have messages come in that are like yo thank you for for making my day at work better or making this long drive better or making me feel um you know connected or or helping me feel like or giving me this new perspective on these nuggets of knowledge, that means a lot to me to hear that and to hear to hear that this podcast is having an impact on people's lives. Y'all are having an impact on my life just by listening and knowing that there are people out there interested in my brain puke. So thank you for that. <laughs> and if this is your if this is your first time here, I hope that this podcast helps you expand your perspective. I hope it helps teach you new things. I hope that, uh, I hope, I hope it, it helps pass the time. I hope it helps you heal. I hope it gives you a safe and comfortable space to come and just genuinely feel welcome. So welcome to all of the new listeners. With all that being said, this episode topic was actually really hard for me to manifest. I kept switching between ideas and I had a really hard time pinning pinning this one down for some reason. I finally I finally got around to diving deep into it, but it took me some time. And there's to be really that's because there's just so many things to talk about and I want to make sure that if I'm going to research something or take notes and then talk about it for any length of time, I want the idea or the concept to be of maximum potency. I'd like it to be a potion that heals your HP, not just 30%, um, but 100%. I want it to max out your HP. I want it to max out your mana. I want it to enhance your runes. I want the armor that you're wearing to become shimmering in the moonlight as the underworld god Ogtham blesses you and takes you to the shrine of the deities where it um, allows you 
to become the true warrior that you were destined to be. Before we get into today's topic, some quick business stuff first. Spreadsheets, diagrams, graphs, conference calls, emails, portfolios, and charts of various varieties, sizes, and formats. <laughs> Seriously, though, I do have a couple of like really quick things. And uh, the first thing is, I don't run ads, and that, that might change in the future, but for now, we are ad-free. And that, uh, with that being said, there are a handful of ways that you as a listener can support this podcast and help me out to create more episodes. The first one is super easy. Whatever you're listening on, drop me a five-star rating, and if you're able to, leave a review. Doing one or both of those helps this podcast out a ton. It helps me uh, get analog thoughts in front of more people. It helps the reach. It helps um, helps it come up in people's, you liked this podcast, you might like this other podcast. So if you're a listener and you'd like to support Hitting that five star or leaving a review goes a very, very long way for me. So thank you. Uh, the second way you can help out is by checking out my Patreon. There are different tiers on the Patreon, and by signing up, you get early access to the podcast, early access to all of my music, all of my art, and a bunch of other stuff over there on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com and search Mount Analog, M-T period A-N-A-L-O-G-U-E, or check the show notes of this episode or any of the episodes, and you can find a link there. The last thing you can do to support is just tell your friends. Share this podcast with someone, let them know you enjoy it, and word of mouth goes a super, super long way. And, okay. Business meeting has been adjourned. Put away your business briefcases and your business spreadsheets and your business hats and put away all of the business. Business time is over. And now... Children, lend me your ears as I regale you with tales of old, stories composed of many years of oral traditions and cultural translations. Today I'd like to read a few stories from the renowned Brothers Grimm. And to set the record straight, the Brothers Grimm didn't exactly write these stories. They rearranged them and rewrote them, really. Jacob and William Grimm were brothers from Germany. There were cultural researchers, philogians, language experts, academics, and obsessed with collecting folklore stories. Rather than thinking of them as authors themselves, think of them as storytellers. Jacob and William were academics. They went to the University of Marburg in Germany and studied medieval German literature. And although they were admitted into the college, they didn't exactly have a lot of money. In fact, they were very, very poor. They fell on a lot of hardships, but luckily one day, Jacob was able to convince the king of Westphalia. Westphalia was a French province or a sort of like satellite state that existed in what is present-day Germany. Um, but anyway, Jacob was able to convince the king, the king of Westphalia, into becoming the court librarian. And this not only solved all of their financial troubles, but it also allowed them essentially unlimited access to books and research documents. In 1807, the Brothers Grimm became well-to-do librarians in Germany proper and began their hardcore collection of folklore. Throughout their lives, they published tons of works that were collections, lexicons, and retellings of folklore all throughout Europe and beyond. A lot of them have German origins, but even those origins span deeper than their seemingly German roots. And in a nutshell, that's pretty much the Brothers Grimm. There's a lot more to their story. There's actually, you know, stories about their story. But today we're going to talk about... Um, some of the stories that they collected and some of the stories that they popularized. And a lot of us are super familiar with, with some of the stories that they popularized, like Cinderella, Snow White, Rapunzel, Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, those are just a few. These are super old stories that they didn't, like I said, they didn't write, but they are responsible for getting them published and seen by mass uh readers across the world. 
We all know these stories. We've all heard versions of these stories. In reality, there's a lot of darkness and death in these stories, and a lot of them don't actually have happy endings because they were told as warnings or stories about how not to conduct yourself. And the versions we know are kind of like Disneyified. And even though these stories were warnings, that's not the only angle uh, that these stories took. They were fables about how to be good, how to work hard. They were um, palatable and exciting ways to embed morals. They also didn't shy away from pure entertainment as well. Because, you know, back before modern technology like radio and TV and movies, sitting by a fire or sitting at a table and just listening to someone tell a story was pretty much your primary form of entertainment. And now uh, we have this form of entertainment today, podcasting, where you sit in front of a microphone and uh, tell stories or tell stories about stories and people listen to those stories and it is a very interesting version, a very interesting mutation of this fireside, tableside story, storytelling format. So with that mode or format or that that vibe, that motif of thinking, I just wanted to I just wanted to straight up read a few of these old stories today as they were published in the Grim Fairy Tales. And with each one I wanted to talk a little about its origins and where it came from. I wanted to take this old format of storytelling and bring it into this new format of podcasting, a nice little fusion of old world meets new world. I decided to I decided to pick a few that are a little less heard of, some stories that were a bit off of the beaten path. Because like I said, we've all heard the hits. We've all heard Cinderella and Snow White and the Little Red Riding Hood, so I wanted to pick a few that their brothers Grimm collected but aren't as heard of. The first one is called The Dog and the Sparrow. A shepherd's dog had a master who took no care of him, but often let him suffer the greatest hunger. At last, he could bear it no longer, so he took to his heels, and off he ran in a very sad and sorrowful mood. On the road, he met a sparrow that said to him, Why are you so sad, my friend? Because, said the dog, I am very, very hungry and have nothing to eat. If that be all, answered the sparrow, come with me into the next town and I will soon find you plenty of food. So on they went together into the town, and as they passed by a butcher's shop, the sparrow said to the dog, Stand there a little while till I peck you down a piece of meat. So the sparrow perched upon the shelf, and having first looked carefully about her to see if anyone was watching her, she pecked and scratched at a stake that lay upon the edge of the shelf, till at last down it fell. Then the dog snapped it up and scrambled away with it into a corner, where he soon ate it all up. Well, said the sparrow, you shall have some more if you will, so come with me to the next shop and I will peck you down another steak. When the dog had eaten this too, the sparrow said to him, Well, my good friend, have you had enough now? I have had plenty of meat, answered he, but I should like to have a piece of bread to eat after it. Come with me then, said the sparrow, and you shall soon see that too. So she took him to a baker's shop and pecked at two rolls that lay in the window till they fell down, and as the dog still wished for more, she took him to another shop and pecked down some more for him. When that was eaten, the sparrow asked him whether he had had enough now. Yes, said he, and now let us take a little walk out of town. So they both went out upon the high road, but as the weather was warm, they had not gone far before the dog said, I am very much tired. I should like to take a nap. Very well, answered the sparrow. Do so, and in the meantime, I will perch upon the bush. So the dog stretched himself out on the road and fell fast asleep. Whilst he slept, there came by a carter with a cart drawn by three horses and loaded with two casks of wine. The sparrow, seeing that the carter did not turn out of the way, 
but would go on in the track in which the dog lay, so as to drive him over, called out, Stop! Stop, Mr. Carter, or it shall be the worst of you. But the carter grumbling to himself, You make it the worst of me indeed. What can you do? Cracked his whip and drove his cart over the poor dog so that the wheels crushed him to death. There, cried the sparrow, thou cruel villain, thou hast killed my friend the dog. Now, mind what I say, this deed of thine shall cost thee all thou art worth. Do your worst, and welcome, said the brute. What harm can you do? And passed on. But the sparrow crept under the tilt of the cart and pecked out the bung of one of the casks till she loosened it. And then all the wine ran out, without the carter seeing it. At last he looked around and saw that the cart was dripping, and the cask quite empty. What an unlucky wretch I am, cried he. Not wretch enough yet, said the sparrow, as she alighted upon the head of one of the horses and pecked at him till he reared up and kicked. When the carter saw this, he drew out his hatchet and aimed a blow at the sparrow, meaning to kill her. But she flew away, and the blow fell upon the poor horse's head with such force that he fell down dead. "'Unlucky wretch that I am!' he cried. "'Not wretch enough yet!' said the sparrow. And as the carter went on with the other two horses, she again crept under the tilt of the cart and pecked out the bung of the second cask, so that all the wine ran out. When the carter saw this, he again cried out, "'Miserable wretch am I!' But the sparrow answered, "'Not wretch enough yet!' and perched on the head of the second horse, and pecked at him too. The carter ran up again and struck at her with his hatchet. But away she flew, and the blow fell upon the second horse and killed him on the spot. Unlucky wretch am I, said he. Not wretch enough yet, said the sparrow, and perching upon the third horse, she began to peck him too. The carter was mad with fury, and without looking about him, or caring what was about, struck again at the sparrow, but killed his third horse as he had done the other two. Alas, miserable wretch am I, cried he. Not wretch enough yet, answered the sparrow as she flew away. Now will I plague and punish thee at thy own house? The carter was forced at last to leave his cart behind him and go home overflowing with rage and vexation. Alas, said he to his wife, what ill luck has befallen me. My wine is all spilt and my horses all three dead. Alas, husband, replied she, and a wicked bird has come into the house and has brought with her all the birds in the world. I am sure they have fallen upon our corn in the loft and are eating it up at such a rate. Away ran the husband upstairs and saw thousands of birds sitting upon the floor, eating upon his corn with the sparrow in the midst of them. Unlucky wretch am I, cried the carter, for he saw that the corn was almost all gone. Not wretch enough yet, said the sparrow. Thy cruelty shall cost thee thy life yet. And away she flew. The carter, seeing that he had thus lost all that he had, went down into his kitchen and was still not sorry for what he had done, but sat himself angrily and sulkily in the chimney corner. But the sparrow sat on the outside of the window and cried, Carter, thy cruelty shall cost thee thy life. With that, he jumped up in a rage, seized his hatchet and threw it at the sparrow, but it missed her and only broke the window. The sparrow now hopped in, perched upon the window seat, and cried, Carter, it shall cost thee thy life. Then he became mad and blind with rage, and struck the window seat with such force that he cleft it in two. And as the sparrow flew from place to place, the carter and his wife were so furious that they broke all their furniture, glasses, chairs, benches, the table, and at last the walls, without touching the bird at all. In the end, however, they caught her. And the wife said, Shall we kill her at once? No, cried he, that is letting her off too easily. She shall die a much more cruel death. I will eat her, 
But the sparrow began to flutter about and stretch out her neck and cried, Carter, it shall cost thee thy life yet. With that, he could wait no longer. He gave his wife the hatchet and cried, Wife, strike at the bird and kill her in my hand. And the wife struck, but she missed her aim and hit her husband on the head so that he fell down dead. And the sparrow flew quietly home to her nest. The end. The story of revenge. The story of not being mindful about your surroundings. The story of um, abusing animals. You know, the carter was on his way. He was the main character in his story, and he just had tunnel vision. He was trying to take his wine to market, and he absentmindedly ran over this dog, and the dog's friend wanted revenge. There are all these elements of revenge and all of these elements of cruelty. There are all these elements of cruelty that we see that um, the Carter puts forward. And I think the story is really straightforward in terms of its intentions of just being mindful about where you're at and who is in your sphere Um in a, phys- in a really physical way, it's like, don't be absent-minded in terms of who or what is around you. And don't get so caught up in your own affairs that you can't have compassion enough to have sympathy or empathy for other creatures that are in, in the way of your goals, you know? Be a, be a good person. <laughs> the origins of the story, um, it has its roots in Germany. It has several publications before being published by the Brothers Grimm, all of which were by German authors and German collectors. And even though it is inherently German, we see flickers of storytelling uh, storytelling elements from other cultures, like the personification of animals, animals working as a team, the absent-minded nature of humans, um, and the absent-minded natures of Humans towards animals in general. A cautionary tale of revenge. On to the next story indeed. This one is called The Fisherman and His Wife. There was once a fisherman who lived with his wife in a pigsty, close by the seaside. The fisherman used to go out all day long a-fishing. And one day, as he sat on the shore with his rod, looking at the sparkling waves and watching his line, all of a sudden, his boat was dragged away deep into the water, and in drawing it up, he pulled out a great fish. But the fish said, Pray, let me live. I am not a real fish. I am an enchanted prince. Put me in the water and let me go. Oh, ho, said the man, you need not make so many words about the matter. I will have nothing to do with a fish that can talk. So swim away, sir, as soon as you please. Then he put him back into the water, and the fish darted straight down to the bottom and left a long streak of blood behind him on the wave. When the fisherman went home to his wife in the pigsty, he told her how he had caught a great fish and how it had told him... It was an enchanted prince, and how on hearing it speak, he had let it go again. Did not you ask it for anything, said the wife? We live very wretchedly here, in this nasty, dirty pigsty. Do go back and tell the fish we want a snug little cottage. The fisherman did not much like the business. However, he went to the seashore, and when he came back there, the water looked all yellow and green. And he stood at the water's edge and said, O man of the sea, hearken to me. My wife, Isabel, will have her own will, and hath sent me to beg a boon of thee. Then the fish came swimming to him and said, Well, what is her will? What does your wife want? Ah, said the fisherman, she says that when I caught you, I ought to have asked for something before I let you go. She does not like living any longer in the pigsty, and wants a snug little cottage. Go home, then, said the fish. She is in the cottage already. So the man went home and saw his wife standing at the door of a nice, trim little cottage. Come in, come in, she said. 
Is not this much better than the filthy pigsty we had? And there was a parlor, and a bedchamber, and a kitchen, and behind the cottage there was a little garden, planted with all sorts of flowers and fruits. And there was a courtyard behind, full of ducks and chickens. Ah, said the fisherman, how happily we shall live now. We will try to do so at least, said his wife. Everything went right for a week or two. And then Dame Isabel said, Husband, there is not near room enough for us in this cottage. The courtyard and the garden are of a great deal too small, and I should like to have a large stone castle to live in. Go to the fish and ask again, and tell him to give us a castle. Wife, said the fisherman, I don't like to go to him again, for perhaps he will be angry. We ought to be easy with this pretty cottage to live in. Nonsense, said the wife. He will do it very willingly, I know. Go along and try. The fisherman went, but his heart was very heavy, and when he came to the sea it looked blue and gloomy. Though it was very calm, he went close to the edge of the waves and said, O oh, man of the sea, hearken to me, my wife Isabel will have her own will, and hath sent me to beg a boon of thee. What does she want now? said the fish. Ah, said the man, dolefully. My wife wants to live in a stone castle. Go home, then, said the fish. She is standing at the gate of it already. So away went the fisherman and found his wife standing before the gate of a great castle. See, said she, is not this grand? With that they went into the castle together and found a great many servants there, and rooms all richly furnished and full of golden chairs and tables, and behind the castle was a garden, and around it was a park half a mile long, full of sheep and goats and horses and deer, and in the courtyard were stables and cow houses. Well, said the man, now we will live cheerful and happy in this beautiful castle for the rest of our lives. Perhaps we may still, said the wife, but let us sleep upon it before we make up our minds to do that. So they went to bed. The next morning when Dame Isabel awoke, it was broad daylight, and she jogged the fisherman with her elbow and said, Get up, husband, and bestir yourself, for we must be king of all the land. Wife, wife, said the man, why should we wish to be the king? I will not be king. Then I will, said she. But wife, said the fisherman, how can you be king? The fish cannot make you a king. Husband, said she, say no more about it, but go and try. I will be king. So the man went away, quite sorrowful to think that his wife should want to be king. This time the sea looked a dark gray color and was overspread with curling waves and the ridges of foam as he cried out, O oh, man of the sea, hearken to me. My wife Isabel will have her own will and hath sent me to beg a boon of thee. Well, what would she have now? said the fish. Alas, said the poor man, my wife wants to be king. Go home, said the fish, she is king already. Then the fisherman went home, and as he came close to the palace, he saw a troop of soldiers, and heard the sound of drums and trumpets, and when he went in, he saw his wife sitting on a throne of gold and diamonds, with a golden crown upon her head, and on each side of her stood six fair maidens, each a head taller than the other. Well, wife, said the fisherman, are you king? Yes, said she. I am king. And when he had looked at her for a long time, he said, Ah, wife, what a fine thing it is to be king. Now we shall never have anything more to wish for as long as we live. I don't know how that may be, she said. Never is a long time. I am king, it is true, but I begin to be tired of that, and I think I should like to be emperor. Alas, wife, why should you wish to be emperor? said the fisherman. Husband, said she, go to the fish and say, I will be emperor. Ah, wife, 
replied the fisherman. The fish cannot make an emperor, I am sure, and I should not like to ask him for such a thing. I am king, said Isabel, and you are my slave. So go at once. So the fisherman was forced to go, and he muttered as he went along, This will come to no good. It is too much to ask. The fish will be tired at last, and then we shall be sorry for what we've done. He soon came to the seashore, and the water was quite black and muddy, and a mite whirlwind blew over the waves and rolled them about. But he went as near as he could to the water's brink, and said, O man of the sea, hearken to me, my wife Isabel will have her own will, and hath sent me to beg a boon of thee. What would she have now? said the fish. Ah, said the fisherman, she wants to be emperor. Go home, said the fish, she is emperor already. So he went home again, and as he came near, he saw his wife Isabel sitting on a very lofty throne made of solid gold, with a great crown on her head, full two yards high. And on each side of her stood her guards and attendants in rows, each one smaller than the other. From the tallest giant down to a little dwarf no bigger than my finger. And before her stood princes and dukes and earls, and the fishermen went up to her and said, Wife, are you emperor? Yes, said she. I am emperor. Ah, said the man, as he gazed upon her. What a fine thing it is to be emperor. Husband, said she, why should we stop at being emperor? I will be pope next. Oh, wife, wife, said he, how can you be pope? There is but one pope at a time in Christendom. Husband, said she, I will be pope this very day. But replied the husband, the fish cannot make you pope. What nonsense, said she. If he can make me an emperor, he can make me a pope. Go and try him. So the fisherman went, but when he came to the shore, the wind was raging, and the sea was tossed up and down in boiling waves, and the ships were in trouble, and rolled fearfully upon the tops of the billows. In the middle of the havens there was a little piece of blue sky, but towards the south all was red, as if a dreadful storm was rising. At this sight the fisherman was dreadfully frightened, and he trembled so his knees knocked together. But still he went down near to the shore and said, O oh, man of the sea, hearken to me. My wife Isabel will have her own will, and hath sent me to beg a boon of thee. What does she want? said the fish. Ah, said the fisherman, my wife wants to be pope. Go home, said the fish, she is pope already. Then the fisherman went home and found Isabel sitting on a throne that was two miles high, and she had three great crowns on her head, and around her stood all the pomp and power of the church, and on each side of her went two rows of burning lights of all sizes, the greatest, as large as the highest and biggest tower in the world, and the least no larger than a small rushlight. Wife, said the fisherman, as he looked at this greatness, are you Pope? Yes, said she. I am Pope. Well, wife, replied he, it is a grand thing to be Pope, and now you must be easy, for you can be nothing greater. I will think about it, said the wife. Then they went to bed. But Dame Isabel could not sleep all night for thinking what she should be next. At last, as she was dropping asleep, Morning broke, and the sun rose. Ah, thought she, as she woke up and looked at it through the window. After all, I cannot prevent the sun rising. At this thought, she was very angry and awakened her husband, and said, Husband, go to the fish and tell him, I must be lord of the sun and moon. The fisherman was half asleep, but the thought frightened him so much that he startled and fell out of bed. Alas, wife, he said, Cannot you be easy with being Pope? No, said she. I am very uneasy as long as the sun and moon rise without my leave. 
Go to the fish at once. Then the man went shivering with fear, and as he was going down to the shore, a dreadful storm arose, so that the trees and the very rocks shook, and all the heavens became black with stormy clouds, and the lightning played, and the thunders rolled. And you might have seen in the sea great black waves swelling up like mountains with crowns of white foam upon their heads. And the fisherman crept towards the sea and cried out as well as he could, O oh, man of the sea, hearken to me. My wife, Isabel, will have her own will, and hath sent me to beg a boon of thee. What does she want now? said the fish. Ah, said he, she wants to be lord of the sun and moon. Go home, said the fish, to your pigsty again. And there they live to this very day. The end. So the moral here is pretty straightforward, I think. Don't be greedy. <laughs> be grateful for what you have. Also, be mindful of your wants and how once the ball of materialism keep like gets rolling, you can sometimes you can never have enough and you can become um, you know, you can become the hungry ghost. You can become unaware that your desires are taking control and 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 becoming what you are. And I think we need we kind of need a tale like this now more than ever in an age where we are perpetually comparing ourselves to others and fantasizing about how wonderful our lives could be if we had just like a little more of this or a little more of that um or if our lives were a little more like other people's lives. It's a this this tale is a warning to be grateful. And if you lose your gratitude, you lose everything. There's actually a ton of variations of this story across the world. In Russia, there's a version of the story called The Old Man, His Wife, and a Fish. And in Japan, it is called The Stonecutter. And there's also an Indian version called The Bollocks Balls. All of these different versions are essentially the same story, just with a slight variations on what exactly the wife asks for. But the premise is still, even across the countries and cultures and across the planet, you know, the essence is still the same. Don't be greedy. Be thankful for what you have. And once you're, um, once you get set on this materialistic nature of reality, you can really lose sight of, uh, what's important to you. And, and it's a, greed is a very dangerous thing. Power is a very, can be a very dangerous thing. So be mindful about that and be happy for what you have. I think I think it's cool that these stories transcend the culture and time and that even today we can appreciate the intention behind what the creators were trying to say. And I also think that it would be really cool if somebody made like modern versions of this of this story and all the fairy tales and told them from the perspective of uh people today. And I know we have we have modern cautionary tales and we have modern fables and modern versions of these stories, but it would be cool if they were, if someone could um, potentially take these Brothers Grimm stories and modernify them, put like modern technology and modern, um, yeah, just, just put them in a more modern setting. I think that'd be cool. How many more times can I say modern? <laughs> Bro the bro the brother the modern brothers grim brothers modern modern brothers grim modern go baby anyway uh after I derail myself we're on to story three and this one's gonna be the last story of of the podcast the last story of story time so lend me your ears get comfortable and allow your imagination to wander as we enter the tale of the valiant little tailor or the brave little tailor. One summer's morning, a little tailor was sitting on his table by the window. He was in good spirits, and sewed with all his might. Then came a peasant woman down the street crying, Good jams, cheap! Good jams, cheap! This rang pleasantly in the tailor's ears. He stretched his delicate head out the window and called, Come up here, dear woman, here you will get rid of all of your goods. 
The woman came up the three steps to the tailor with her heavy basket, and he made her unpack all the pots for him. He inspected each one, lifted it up, put his nose to it, and at length said, The jam seems to be... good. So weigh me out four ounces, dear woman, and if it is a quarter of a pound, that is of no consequence. The woman, who had hoped to find a good sale, gave him what he desired, but went away quite angry and grumbling. Now this jam shall be blessed by God, cried the little tailor. Give me health and strength. So he brought the bread out of the cupboard, cut himself a piece right across the loaf, and spread the jam over it. This won't taste bitter, he said, but I will just finish the jacket before I take a bite. He laid the bread near him, sewed on, and in his joy made bigger and bigger stitches. In the meantime, the smell of the sweet jam rose to where the flies were sitting in great numbers, and they were attracted and descended on to its hosts. Oh, hi, who invited you? said the little tailor and drove the unbidden guests away. The flies, however, who understood no German, would not be turned away, but came back again in ever-increasing companies. The little tailor at last lost his patience and drew a piece of cloth from the hole under his work table, and saying, Wait, I will give it to you, struck it mercilessly on them. When he drew it away and counted, there lay before him no fewer than seven, dead and with legs stretched out. Are you a fellow of that sort? said he, and could not help admiring his own bravery. The whole town shall know of this. And the little tailor hastened to cut himself a girdle, stitched it, and embroidered on it seven at one stroke. What? The town, he continued. The whole world shall hear of this. And his heart wagged with joy like a lamb's tail. The tailor put on the girdle, and resolved to go forth into the world, because he thought his workshop was too small for his valor. Before he went away, he sought about in the house to see if there was anything which he could take with him. However, he found nothing but an old cheese, and that he put in his pocket. In front of the door he observed a bird, which had caught itself in the thicket. It had to go into his pocket with the cheese. Now he took to the road boldly. And as he was light and nimble, he felt no fatigue. The road led him up a mountain, and when he had reached the highest point of it, there sat a powerful giant looking peacefully about him. The little tailor went bravely up, spoke to him, and said, Good day, comrade. So you are sitting there overlooking the widespread world. I am just on my way thither, and want to try my luck. Have you any inclination to go with me? The giant looked contemptuously at the tailor and said, You ragamuffin, you miserable creature. Oh, indeed, answered the little tailor and unbuttoned his coat and showed the giant the girdle. There, there, may you read what kind of man I am. The giant read, seven at one stroke, and thought that they had been men whom the tailor had killed and began to feel a little respect for the tiny fellow. Nevertheless, he wished to try him first, and took a stone in his hand and squeezed it together so that the water dropped out of it. Do that likewise, said the giant, if you have strength. Is that all, said the tailor? That is child's play with us, and put his hand into his pocket, brought out the soft cheese and pressed it until the liquid ran out of it. Faith! said he. That was a little better, wasn't it? The giant didn't know what to say, and could not believe it of the little man. Then the giant picked up a stone and threw it so high that the eye could scarcely follow it. Now, little mite of a man, do that likewise. Well thrown, said the tailor, but after the stone came down to earth again, I will throw you one which will never be back at all. And he put his hand into his pocket, took out the bird, and threw it into the air. The bird, delighted with its liberty, rose, flew away, and did not come back. How does that shot speak to you, comrade? asked the tailor. You can certainly throw, said the giant. But now we will see if you are able to carry anything properly. He took the little tailor to a mighty oak tree, which lay there felled on the ground, and said, If you are strong enough, help me to carry the tree out of the forest. Readily, answered the little man. 
Take you the trunk of the tree on your shoulder, and I will raise the branches and twigs. After all, they are the heaviest. The giant took the trunk on his shoulders, but the tailor seated himself on a branch, and the giant, who could not look around, had to carry away the whole tree and the little tailor into the bargain. He behind was quite merry and happy, and whistled the song, Three tailors rode forth from the gate, as if carrying the tree were child's play. The giant, after he had dragged the heavy burden part of the way, could go no further and cried, Hark you! I shall have to let the tree fall. The tailor sprang nimbly down, seized the trunk with both arms as if he had been carrying it, and said to the giant, You are such a great fellow, and yet cannot even carry the tree? They went on together, and as they passed a cherry tree, the giant laid hold of the top of the tree, where the ripest fruit was hanging, bent it down, gave it to the tailor's hand, and bade him eat. But the little tailor was much too weak to hold the tree, and when the giant let it go, it sprang back again and the tailor was tossed into the air with it. When he had fallen down again without injury, the giant said, What is this? Have you not strength enough to hold the weak twig? There is no lack of strength, answered the little tailor. Do you think that could be anything to a man who has struck down seven at one blow? I leapt over the tree because the huntsmen are down shooting there in the thicket. Jump as I did, if you can do it. The giant made the attempt but he could not get over the tree, and remained hanging in the branches, so that in this the tailor also kept the upper hand. The giant said, If you're such a valiant fellow, come with me into our cavern and spend the night with us. The little tailor was willing and followed him. When they went into the cave, other giants were sitting there by the fire, and each of them had a roasted sheep in his hand and was eating it. The little tailor looked around and thought, It is much more spacious here than in my workshop. The giant showed him a bed and said he was to lie down in it and sleep. The bed, however, was too big for the little tailor, and he did not lie down in it, but crept into a corner. When it was midnight, and the giant thought that the little tailor was lying in a sound sleep, he got up took a great iron bar and cut through the bed with one blow, and thought he had finished off the tailor for good. With the earliest dawn, the giants went into the forest and had quite forgotten the little tailor, when all at once he walked up to them, quite merrily and boldly. The giants were terrified. They were afraid that he would strike them all dead, and ran away in a great hurry. The little tailor went onwards, always following his own pointed nose. After he had walked for a long time, he came to the courtyard of a royal palace, and as he felt weary, he lay down on the grass and fell asleep. Whilst he lay there, the people came and inspected him on all sides, and read on his girdle, seven at one stroke. Ah, said they, what does the great warrior want here in the midst of peace? He must be a mighty lord." They went and announced him to the king, and gave it as their opinion that if war should break out, this would be a weighty and useful man who ought on no account be allowed to depart. The council pleased the king, and he sent one of his counselors to the little tailor to offer him military service when he awoke. The ambassador remained standing by the sleeper, waited until he stretched his limbs and opened his eyes, and then conveyed to him his proposal. For this very reason I have come here. The tailor replied, I am ready to enter the king's service. He was therefore honorably received, and a special dwelling was assigned him. The soldiers, however, were set against the little tailor, and wished him a thousand miles away. What is to be the end of this? They said amongst themselves. If we quarrel with him, and he strikes about him, seven of us will fall at every blow. Not one of us can stand against him. They came, therefore, to a decision. Betook themselves in a body to the king, and begged for their dismissal. We are not prepared, said they, to stay with a man who kills seven at one stroke. The king was sorry, for the sake of one, he should lose all his faithful servants, wished that he had never set eyes on the tailor, and would willingly have been rid of him again. 
But he did not venture to give him his dismissal, for he dreaded lest he should strike him and all his people dead and place himself on the royal throne. He thought about it for a long time and at last found good counsel. He sent to the little tailor and caused him to be informed that he was a great warrior and had one request to make of him. In a forest of his country lived two giants who caused him great mischief with their robbing, murdering, ravaging, and burning, and no one could approach them without putting himself in danger or death. If the tailor conquered and killed these two giants, he would give him his only daughter to wife and half of his kingdom as a dowry. Likewise, one hundred horsemen should go with him to assist him. That would indeed be a fine thing for a man like me, thought the little tailor. One is not offered a beautiful princess and half a kingdom every day of his life. Oh, yes, he replied. I will soon subdue the giants and do not require the help of the hundred horsemen to do it. He who can hit seven at one blow has no need to be afraid of two. The little tailor went forth, and the hundred horsemen followed him. When he came to the outskirts of the forest, he said to his followers, Just stay waiting here. I alone will soon finish off the giants. Then he bounded into the forest, then looked about right and left. After a while, he perceived both giants. They lay sleeping under a tree and snored so the branches waved up and down. The little tailor, not idle, gathered two pockets full of stones, and with this climbed up the tree. When he was halfway up, he slipped down by a branch until he sat just above the sleepers and then let one stone after the other fall on the breast of one of the giants. For a long time, the giants felt nothing, but at last he awoke, pushed his comrade and said, Why are you knocking me? You must be dreaming, said the other. I am not knocking you. They laid themselves down to sleep again, and then the tailor threw a stone down on the second one. What is the meaning of this? cried the other. Why are you pelting me? I'm not pelting you, answered the first, growling. They disputed it for a time, but as they were weary, they let the matter rest, and their eyes closed once more. The little tailor began his game again, picked out the biggest stone, and threw it with all his might on the breast of the first giant. That is too bad, cried he and sprang up like a madman, and pushed his companion against the tree until it shook. The other paid him back in the same coin. They got into such a rage that tore up trees, and they fought each other for so long that at last they both fell down dead on the ground at the same time. Then the little tailor leapt down. It is a lucky thing, he said, that they did not tear up the tree on which I was sitting, or I should have had to have sprint onto another like a squirrel. But we tailors are nimble. He drew out his sword and gave each of them a couple of thrusts in the breast, and then went out to the horseman and said, The work is done. I have finished both of them off. But it was hard work. They tore up trees in their sore need and defended themselves with them. But all this is to no purpose when a man like myself comes, who can kill seven at one blow. But are you not wounded? asked the horseman. You need not concern yourself about that, answered the tailor. They have not bent one hair of mine. The horseman would not believe him, and rode into the forest. There they found the giants swimming in their blood, and all round about lay the torn-up trees. The little tailor demanded of the king the promised reward. He, whoever repented of his promise, and again bethought himself how he could get rid of the hero. Before you receive my daughter... And the half of my kingdom, said he to him, you must perform one more heroic deed. In the forest roams a unicorn, which does great harm, and you must catch it. I fear one unicorn still less than two giants. Seven at one blow is my kind of affair. He took a rope and an axe with him and went forth into the forest and again bade those who were sent with him to wait outside. He had not long to seek. The unicorn soon came towards him and rushed directly on the tailor, as if it would gore him with its horn without more ado. Softly, softly, it came. Be done as quickly as that, said he, and stood still and waited until the animal was quite close, and then sprang nimbly behind the tree. 
The unicorn ran against the tree with all its strength and stuck its horn so fast in the trunk that it had not the strength enough to draw it out again, and thus it was caught. Now I've got the bird, said the tailor, and came out from behind the tree and put the rope round the neck, and then with his axe he hewn the horn off the tree, and when all was ready, he led the beast away and took it to the king. The king would still not give him the promised reward, and made a third demand. Before the wedding, the tailor was to catch him a wild boar that made great havoc in the forest, and the huntsmen should give him their help. Willingly, said the tailor, this is child's play. But he did not take the huntsmen with him into the forest, and they were well pleased that he did not. For the wild boar had several times received them in such a manner that they had no inclination to lie in wait for him. When the boar perceived the tailor, it ran on him with foaming mouth and wetted tusks, and was about to throw him to the ground. But the hero fled and sprang into a chapel which was near, and up to the window at once, and in one bound out again. The boar ran after him, but the tailor ran around outside and shut the door behind it. And then the raging beast, which was much too heavy and awkward to leap out the window, was caught. The little tailor called the huntsmen thither, and they might see the prisoner with their own eyes. The hero, however, went to the king, who was now, whether he liked it or not, obliged to keep his promise, and gave his daughter and half of his kingdom. Had he known that it was no warlike hero, but a little tailor who was standing before him, he would have gone to his heart still more than he did. The wedding was held with great magnificence and small joy, and out of a tailor a king was made. After some time, the young queen heard the husband say in his dreams at night, "'Boy, make me the doublet.' and patch the pantaloons, or else I will wrap the yard measure over your ears. Then she discovered in what state of life the young lord had been born, and the next morning complained of her wrongs to her father, and begged him to help her to get rid of the husband, who was nothing else but a tailor. The king comforted her and said, Leave your bedroom door open this night, and my servant shall stand outside, and when he has fallen asleep, shall go in. Bind him, and take him on board a ship, which shall carry him into the wide world. The woman was satisfied with this, but the king's armor-bearer, who had heard all, was friendly with the young lord, and informed him of the whole plot. I'll put a screw into that business, said the little tailor. At night he went to bed with his wife at the usual time, and when she thought that he had fallen asleep, she got up, opened the door, and then lay down again. The little tailor, who was only pretending to be asleep, began to cry out in a clear voice, Boy, make me the doublet, and patch the pantaloons, or I will wrap the yard measure over your ears. I smote seven at one blow, I killed two giants, I brought away one unicorn, and I caught a wild boar, and I am to fear those who are standing outside my room? When these men heard the tailor speaking thus, they were overcome by great dread, and ran as if the wild huntsmen were behind them, and none of them would venture anything further against him. So the little tailor was and remained a king to the end of his life. The End So essentially this story is a tale of bravery. It's a story of someone breaking the confines of the reality tunnel that they've been placed in, or that's been placed before them. It's a story of using your wits and your cunning to achieve great things. It's about, um, it's about faking it until you make it. It's about, it's about going beyond what you think you can do and just having this level of, uh, like supreme confidence. Like I can do these things because I want to do these things and I have the willpower to do these things. It's also about um, being resourceful and using and taking what you have and making the best out of it. The tailor is rewarded time and time again about essentially um, using whatever he has uh, at his disposal just to make the best out of a situation. This story is to me somewhat a tale of empowerment, that this humble tailor overcomes challenges with bravery and becomes a king. Uh, it lets you know, like, no matter where you are in life, 
you if you're if you're brave, if you're resilient, you can do anything that you want and that you shouldn't be afraid to try. And sure the tailor is kind of like <laughs> he wasn't necessarily telling the whole truth about the seven blows, like killing seven flies and putting it on his on his uh girdle, but that was the perception that people had of him and he just kind of ran with it. I don't really think like <laughs> I don't think that was the most honest route to <laughs> to move forward in his journey, but I also think he was super resourceful and brave and it took him to great places. This story is actually kind of from all over the place. There's some uh similarities with a Scandinavian tale called The Boy Who Had an Eating Match with a Troll. And it also shares elements with Jack the Giant Killer, which we all know, the English-slash-Celtic story. Uh, It also shares similarities to the Greek story of Hercules, where Hercules is promised the ability to become a god if he slays monsters. And it also parallels many stories, many other stories in Greek mythology, having heroes pitted against monsters um, to fight and kill them. And of course, this story is uh, also an inspiration for J.R.R. Tolkien in The Hobbit when Gandalf convinces the three trolls to keep bickering with each other until the sun rises and they turn to stone. One of my favorite tales. (laughs) So, stories, 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 stories forever. These were just three of the many, many stories that were collected and retold by the Brothers Grimm, and we're still writing and creating stories today in really amazing ways, uh, via books, movies, video games, podcasts, (laughs) and they're all being guided by the intention to inspire and to embed a piece of the creator's perspective on reality into the story. It's really interesting how we all connect to stories, how you don't have to be from a particular time or a particular place to understand or appreciate the concepts of bravery, gratitude, kindness, or love, or despair. So, bless to the uh, collective creators that made these stories and all of the fables and allegories that guide our culture and existence. Keeping in the keeping in the theme of storytelling, I'm gonna round out the podcast, finish out the podcast with uh, this episode's collection of fun facts. So the first storytelling fact is that a group of scientists in the UK conducted a study and found that listening to character-driven stories actually makes you a more empathetic person. Um, listening to said stories releases the chemical oxytocin in your brain. And oxytocin is a chemical that is associated with love and empathy. And they also found that sharing information in a story format makes it a lot more memorable to listeners because there is an emotional component to it. Our next fact is that uh, studies have found that at least... 65% of our conversations are storytelling, talking about your day, talking about your past, talking about the future, all of these things uh, we frame as stories. And it's rare that we're just sitting and describing an object or something, or even if we are uh, doing that, we kind of convey it in the storytelling sort of way. Or, or we're, you know, even if we're talking about movies or shows or books we've read, these are all stories. The next fun fact is some of the first written stories were from 3000 BCE, and they come from Egypt. Stories about their gods, which they consider, which they considered real and nonfiction. One, if not the first works of actual fiction comes from a bit before the Egyptians, and it is from Mesopotamia, and it's called The Epic of Gilgamesh, which is about uh, a king named Gilgamesh who is one-third man uh, and two-thirds god. Kind of a, it's kind of a Hercules-type situation going on. And it's a super 
It's a super epic story where he slays monsters, hangs out with gods, and searches for the key to immortality. So I hope to someday... I read um, like the whole uh, synopsis of the story, but I'd like to someday read what all it has to offer because it sounds like the first work of fiction... I want to read it. I want to, I want to check it out. So many stories. Stories forever. And that rounds out our little fun, our section of fun factoids. I'd like to, I'd like to see more stories in our day-to-day lives. And we get a bit of it when we, when we dial into technology. But I kind of had this idea where there needs to be a storytelling app or like a storytelling website or something where people can take their life experiences and turn them into short little fables and share them with everybody. And it could be like, you could even call it like fable or, you know, like it would be, it wouldn't be about like, it wouldn't necessarily be like a, like a social media. Like there wouldn't be like likes and algorithms and, and stuff like that. They would just be stories. It would just be all user, raw inspiration, raw intention, like raw, fables that people share with each other. I think that would be really fun. There's probably a subreddit for that. <laughs> I'm going to have to I'm going to have to if anyone knows about anyone who's like writing stories. I've seen some cool fan fiction things, but if there's like a consistent feed of fables that people are publishing like short stories, I'd be real interested to dial into that. I'm sure it's out there. Story time forever. Story time forever and ever and ever. Stories forever. Thank you to the Thank you to the Brothers Grimm and to the countless people and cultures that created these stories once again. And here's to another infinite well of stories and experiences. Find me over on Patreon at Mount Analog, M-T period A-N-A-L-O-G-U-E, or you can check the show notes of this episode or any of the episodes. Like I said before, you get uh, early, early episodes, early music, early art, and a ton more stuff. Check it out over there. Don't forget to leave the five star reviews, um, or leave the leave the five star ratings. Leave a review if you can. It really helps out. And really, just thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing the experience. Uh, it really does truly mean a lot to me. And I hope that I've helped to enhance your day in a real way and hope to uh i hope that i've helped enhance your reality in a real way remember to check on your mental health remember to check on the mental health of your loved ones bye analog thoughts analog thoughts analog thoughts analog thoughts